I want to give you a couple of real-life examples just to get us started off here. James and Jill. James, James has a tendency to be quite self-absorbed. He was always on social media, forever portraying himself as the happiest, the funniest, brightest man alive. Uh, he's a Christian, so he, and he often liked to tweet things from the Bible or from Christian books. But even when he tweeted quotes from Christian books he had been reading, deep down it was really just all about showing off. One Sunday afternoon, having heard a message on the humility of Christ preached from Philippians 2 that morning, he was composing a tweet. And he found himself uh, writing it, then deleting it, then rewriting it, then deleting it, then rewriting it, then deleting it again. Because he was thinking over the best way to say it. But the tweet itself, it wasn't about him, it was about the sermon. But as he was about to tweet his final draft, he realized he was much more excited about how many people would like it than he was about people being impacted by the truth that he was about to share. The irony of proudly tweeting about humility convicted him. So he deleted the tweet and decided to fast from social media for a month and instead spend the same amount of time in prayer asking God to help him be humble. What a simple, practical change to make. Jill, Jill doesn't have a problem with alcoholism by any stretch, but the occasional gin and tonic was starting to become, well, not occasional anymore. It was becoming a habit. She never had more than one, but when her husband softly pointed out how often a bottle arrived in the Tesco delivery, well, she felt convicted. They talked about it together, and she realized that she was actually relying on that one drink to teach, take the edge off her anxieties about how hard she was finding it being a mum. That obviously made her feel sad, though God, convictionally in her heart, was her peace. Functionally, in life, he wasn't. Jen was. So she resolved she would only drink socially, and not alone when she was in the house. It wasn't going to master her. She was subject to one master, in whom all her hope was found, Jesus Christ. So at night, sometimes she asks her husband to pray about her anxieties for a couple of minutes, and if she's feeling particularly worried, he'll read to her from a Christian book as she goes off to sleep. Now again, there is uh, an example of the kind of thing that can happen in a Christian life and a simple solution to the problem identified. Two everyday examples, really, of how the gospel changes people and their behavior at a very practical level. They change their behavior, but woven into the story is the change from thorn-bearing to fruit-bearing, as we've been thinking about in this series, is rooted not in their will, not in their decisiveness, though those are secondary things that happen, the primary cause, which may seem hidden at first, is love for God. It's love for Jesus. Love for God is key to producing godly fruit in everyday life. Love for God as bigger and better than anything this world has to offer, I want to say tonight, is 
absolutely crucial to helping us put sin to death and live for Jesus in all the ways that we want to, convictionally, even if not functionally. So let me show you how this works by revisiting the three trees diagram. Tonight we are looking at the fruit tree and breaking down the three components just as we did the thorn bush a couple of weeks ago. The heart, the fruit, and the consequences. First of all then, the heart. Now a couple of weeks ago I highlighted that the problem, uh, the, the human heart is the problem that underlies all of our behavior. It's the CPU of human behavior. Out of the overflow of the heart, we act, we speak, we sin. But how does the gospel we looked at last week change that? Well, fundamentally, remember, when you come to Christ, it's like getting a heart transplant. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 36, God gives people who are reaping the consequences of their sinful hearts and actions a very, very important promise. A promise that for them lay at some point in the future, but for us today through Jesus Christ is a very present reality. And here's the promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you instead a heart of flesh. Now, compare and contrast. What's the difference between the two hearts? It's pretty easy to figure it out. The old heart is dysfunctional. It's cold and dead towards God. In other words, it doesn't love him. No affection in there. But the new heart that God puts in us is fully functional, alive and warm in terms of affection for God's. This second heart, that's what God so graciously gives us, and it's that gifted heart that makes loving God for us in the day-to-dayness of Christian life much more than a possibility. So how does a heart that desires God, a new heart, that is warm towards him with love and affection, help us change? Well, in three particular ways. A heart that loves God starts off by helping us expose the ugliness of all other loves. I don't know if you're a Shakespeare fan, if you like Romeo and Juliet. This is how Romeo got rid of Rosalind. Do you remember Rosalind? Some of you are just like, who is Rosalind? It's about Romeo. It's not Romeo and Rosalind. It's Romeo and Juliet. Well, at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, you meet Romeo. What's he doing? He is pining for Rosalind, going on and on and on about Rosalind. Then his friend shows up and says, man, you're, you're really quite down and this is starting to drive me insane, so we're going to go to a party. To which Romeo says, the all-seeing sun has ne'er seen her match since first the world begun. There is none fairer than Rosalind. So they go to the party and then Romeo later sees Juliet, and that night he sneaks into her garden, not recommended, looks up to her window and says, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou, her maid, are far more fairer than she. 
Rosalind who? <laughs> Girls, not the kind of guy you should be going after. Never mind. Anyway, everything, everyone, everything pales compared to Jesus. Everything. Everything you love to pursue, every sin that quietly you love to commit, no matter what form it takes, whether it's the entertaining of pride or the entertaining of gratifying images, whatever it is, whether it's entertaining the reputation that you think you have in the sight of other people, none of it compares to Jesus. The beautiful lust compared to his beauty becomes putrid. It's filthy. The attractiveness of anger as a means of controlling your environment is grotesque. If through the gospel God is recreating his image in us, we ought not to run after these lesser loves, but eagerly desire the greater. Secondly, a heart that loves God not only exposes the ugliness of all other loves, but eagerly desires and longs for the beauty of Christ. I wonder what you make of the portrait of Jesus that you read about when you read the Bible. Or when you hear God's word opened up in a Bible study or preached from a pulpit. Do you think about him? What do you think about him when you see him at the bedside of the dead little girl and hear him say, Talitha kumi, little girl, get up. What do you think of him when you see him at the well talking to the woman who is so shunned by her society she needs to come out for water in the midday heats? What do you think of Jesus when you see him on the cross? Bleeding, dying, pleading forgiveness for his executioners and mockers. Surely the sight of Jesus as the biblical portrait presents him stirs in us adoration. There's no one like him. No one else compares to him. Or what do you make of the teachings of Jesus taught in the Bible? What do you think of him when you hear, for example, the Apostle Paul talk about there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Or Paul listing until he's absolutely breathless what the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ actually wins for rebellious sinners like us. Or when Peter talks often as he does about what awaits us in the new heaven and new earth because of what Christ done for us. What can we do but love him? For someone who graciously gives us the things that we don't deserve but that gift which contains so much, it's absolutely mind-blowing. None of us deserved it. When you see Christ for who he is in those ways, either seeing him act or hearing him taught, 
desire him, love him, desire him more. And thirdly, a heart that loves God eagerly consumes the word about Christ. This is so crucial to our ongoing everyday change. Whether we're with our church family or in, in small groups or on our own, we read God's word and we expect our hearts to change and our lives as a consequence. What do we think is happening when we read God's word? Is it just some dull and drab tick box exercise for us? Or does it actually, actually affect us? I'm reading this book by John Piper just now called Reading the Bible Supernaturally. It is absolutely fantastic, and it's well worth getting your teeth into. I think you can get it online for free as a PDF on desiringgod.org. So why don't you go on, flick through it, see if you like it. If you really like it, buy the book, because it's big, and it's hard, and it's good. Anyway, it's, uh, it's a book. Well, so... This is what he says. This is his whole thesis. He's talking about what is, why has God given us the Bible? What is it for and how should we read it? Well, he walks us through simply how reading the Bible works for us. So the scriptures first reveal God's glory. This glory, God willing, is seen by those who read it. This seeing by God's grace gives rise to not just information going in there, but savoring in the heart, loving what you read. And it's this savoring that starts to transform our lives. Is that how we read the Bible? Do we read it and mull over it? Like a slow-mo savoring of a steak, chewing it. Oh, that's good. drawing out what we're to draw out? Or is it tick box? Is it a quick read? Right, I've done that. Didn't really affect me. Some would say that. And I would say, watch out for how you approach God's word. Disinterested, casual glimpse of, glimpses of glory don't transform us. And you might say, well, I've tried this. I actually didn't really know how to, how to read the Bible. Then get some help. Ask people. Ask us, we'd be delighted to help. You might say, well, I tried it, it didn't really leave a mark. Then another question you might ask is, what other love is in the way? What other sin is inhibiting your savoring of Jesus Christ? It's crucial to wrestle with this. Crucial to understand the, the part the Bible plays in helping us see Christ and savor Christ in a way that helps us want, desire to be like Christ. So brothers and sisters, do you desire God? Do you love and adore him? Is he foremost in your heart and in your affections? And does your life demonstrate that functionally? Is that true? Could other people say of you, that is true? Talk to each other about these things after services, in small groups. Find ways to fuel your affection for Jesus and let this aspect of our model of sanctification grow and flourish. It's meant to. God is to be enjoyed. And I wonder if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian 
has your heart been so changed yet that you have seen for yourself the beauty of Jesus Christ compared to all other things in your life? All other. Please, would you let us read the Bible with you? Let us walk through the Gospel of Mark or John with you and show, us, show you just week by week, opportunity by opportunity, why we have this firm and settled conviction that Jesus is better and better by far than anything this world has for us. Well, what's the product of a heart that loves God above all other things? This is number two, fruit. Christian character flows out of this love for God. It's the heart that's changed. It's the heart when transformed through applying the gospel, through repentance and faith that is changed. And godliness is the product of a heart that loves God above all other loves. So the same principle we thought about when we looked at thorns a couple of weeks ago applies here. Out of the overflow of your heart, you act. We looked at this briefly, of course, from Luke chapter 6, verse 43 and following, which says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So what is Jesus teaching us here? He's saying if you're storing up love for God in your hearts, good things in your hearts, God-honoring things, if you're putting the grace of God to work, pursuing holiness and obedience to God's command, good will come out. Good will come out. Good will be produced but what kind of good? What kind of things can we expect? Well, the kind of fruit that's spelled out for us in Galatians 5. We read from it earlier on. The good that comes out is effectively the loveliness of Christ. These are his character traits written down for us, described as and known as the fruit of the Spirit. And this isn't just the character of Christ. This is the this is the ambition and the desire of the Spirit. We thought about that in week one. That as we behold Christ, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we are being transformed into his likeness, bit by bit, with ever-increasing glory. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So we've thought a lot about what thorns are being produced in our lives because of our sinful passions. Those are the things that we ought to, as the Bible says, put off, take off like old clothing, put to death or kill these are the things, the fruit of the Spirit, are the things that we are to put on, to adopt, and to feed and flourish. Imagine your life, imagine my life, our life together characterized by these traits. What would it be like if out of love 
we laid ourselves down for the good of another consistently in our own church family with friends. What would we be like if out of our unshakable joy in God, even in hardship, we were still striving to make other people happy in Him? What, if, what would it be like if in the storms of things that usually make people anxious, we held the deep-seated peace knowing that God is in control and everything's okay? What kind of impact might that have? What would it be like if we dealt patiently with circumstances or with people as an expression of mercy? What would it be like if we acted towards others with kindness that sought to bless them no matter what? Or we did good deeds out of an altruistic desire to do what is right in the sight of God, live purely before Him? What would we be like if we lived every day as those who are faithful to the God that we profess, to the identity that He's given us, and even to the tasks, the commandments that He's given us? What would we look like if we, instead of being rash and hot-headed, dealt gently with all, humbly and meekly? What would we be like if instead of being mastered by sinful passions, practiced grace-empowered restraint and a settled resolve and control? I want a life like that. I struggle to live a life like that in lots of ways. We need each other, as the Bible says, to help each other turn our heads to Christ, to gaze on his beauty, to speak words of truth into each other's lives saying no one is better, nothing is better. Yes, even that. Kill that. Look to Jesus and adorn your life with the very traits and characteristics that typified his life and that characterize his deity. Do you not want that? It's beautiful. These are the kind of traits that make us the aroma of life to each other. These things are so good. Paul is explaining this is what the Spirit desires for you. This is what's to be pursued. I sometimes think we spend so much time thinking about the things we need to kill. We don't think about the things we need to put on. This is a corrective. And Paul says this really in the negative. I love what he says at the very end of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. And then he says, against such things, there is no law. It really just struck me again this week. Against such, no one is going to tell you to stop doing these things. You'll never be arrested for doing these things. Against such things, there is no law. Nothing wrong with these. It's all good. So pursue these things. Adopt these things. The consequences, briefly, number three, well, it's shaped the same way as our studies in the thorns a couple of weeks ago. We reap what we sow. Paul again spells it, spells it out later in Galatians 6. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. There's the thorns and their consequences. But whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
So what are the consequences that result from good roots and good fruits? Well, there are three personal consequences. You will be a happier person. Contentment increases. Godliness increases. You can add to that list all night. There are relational consequences where even in general terms, your godliness, of course it impacts those around you. You become a much more tolerable person. It's what your friends want. But more than that, you start to become a great encouragement to others around you. You actually help people change when you start to beautify Christ by seeing him as beautiful. You help others see that change is possible, that the gospel really works. And you'll be a massive encouragement relationally within a church family. I'm not sure how much we actually grasp how much the gospel demands of us as a family together. I mean, how should the reality of heat, the heart struggle with sinful desires, the gospel-denying testimony of sinful deeds or thorns, how should that change the way we talk and think when we gather? How should the reality of the prospect of fruit and the encouragement to help each other look to Christ to put on his virtues and traits, how should it change the way we think and talk together when we gather? Well, it ought to change everything. It changes what we talk about after a service when the tea and coffee is going round. We can be talking about the sermon or what we've read that day and how it impacted us. And we don't need to feel weird about it. It's not weird after a service to say, what struck you from that sermon? It's not weird in the slightest. It's normal. And it changes what we offer as prayer requests in our small groups when we gather. Why the pretense that everything's okay? Why pretend that the biggest problem in our lives are our circumstances rather than our hearts and our sinful passions? Let's talk more about and seek more prayer for the things that really matter, the weeds we need to pull up, the seeds we need to sow instead. And of course, the fundamental reason why it matters so significantly is that there are missional consequences. When we desire Christ out of hearts that love and adore him, and seek but with the Spirit's help and God's grace to change into his likeness, our witness to those who don't yet believe the gospel is sharpened, it's magnified, the cross is brought more into focus. We hold up God as who he truly is, glorious and powerful, and his gospel effective in achieving what he promises in his word that it will achieve and it helps people to be more willing to hear the word of God, which, as we've already seen, is transformative. Friends, I hope we've seen over these series, as I've dashed through these different aspects of the real change model, that this is how God is at work to change us, to be more like Jesus, every day. 
Now, neither this series nor this model tells us everything we need to know about sanctification. There's a year's worth of sermons on this topic, really. But it's a useful mirror. As I said, it shows us what we're like. And it's a useful map showing us where we ought to be. And my encouragement for us is to to get a hold of this. If you've lost your copy that we gave out in the first week, then ask for another copy. We're happy to provide one for you. Uh, Use it. Familiarize yourself with it. Either to think about, okay, in the future, what am I going to be ambitious for? I'm going to put this sin to death. I'm going to put this virtue on. These are going to be two things I struggle with. Therefore, I'm going to focus on them. Or you can use it to analyze an episode in your life. Why did I react the way I reacted? What was going on? What was I desiring? What was I thinking in that moment? What would it look like if the gospel was applied in that situation? Use it in that way. And realize this. Brothers and sisters, real change is really possible because this is God's work in us. But do remember, with all the practical instruction that we're trying to provide, that this is a progressive work. As the Apostle Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. May we have that same resolve, motivated by and encouraged by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.